Yes, Chris's mother has passed. Her funeral was today. Yeah, she's having surgery, I think, tentatively on the 17th. It's scheduled for her. On her back. Anyone else? What's that? Oh, I'm fine, Miss Garnell. How are you? All right. Let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our Bible study. Lord, it's a privilege to bring before you your people, uh, people that you already know are hurting or in pain people that you know are struggling with sickness, are beginning treatments for sickness. Lord, as we were reminded Sunday, all of these things happen under your authority. All of these things happen, Lord. Um, they're inside of your will, even when it's hard for us to see that. But remind, remind us that you meet us faithfully in the struggles and afflictions that we face in this life. You meet us and you give us yourself, which is what we need even more than physical healing. We need you. Your word says that we need you even more than bread, more than food. Your word tells us in Colossians 1 that you are actively holding all things together. That includes us, that includes our bodies, that includes our lives. So our lives are not contingent on how healthy we are or how sick we aren't. Our lives are contingent on you. And so, God, we trust you with that. Would you bring these sweet people before you? We lay them at your feet. We unload these anxieties onto you because you care. Pray that you'd bring them peace and comfort. Lord, we pray that they would experience you in a way they never have. That they would know your presence, that they'd know your peace, that they would know your comfort. Lord, we are reminded every time we pray, and we pray over sickness and hurting and affliction, we're reminded that we are still living in a world plagued with sin. And so we look forward, God. Teach us to look forward to the day when you get rid of sin, when you come to dwell with us, and when there's no crying, no pain, no death, no sickness, no anything. Only perfect health and happiness because you are there and you are with us and we are with you. And we see you with our eyes. We see you as you are. So, Lord, we look forward to that day. Pray now as we turn our attentions to your word. Pray we put aside the burdens of today, the, the distractions of today, that we would focus in on what you would have to say to us this evening through your eternal word. Lord, I pray that it would be life to our souls. It would enlighten our eyes that it would uh, be taken to heart, that we might walk uh, in a way that's honoring before you. Lord, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 7, <coughs> the sermon. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. So at this point, we've moved through... Um, Four, four beatitudes, poorness of spirit, being emptied of all that's natural within us, all that's not of God, all that's of ourselves, all that's sin, that the Holy Spirit empties us of that, that we mourn over the fact that we still have sin in our lives, that the world is still broken over sin, that people are sick, we mourn over those things, that we are meek, that doesn't mean we are weak or hiding, it means that we are in Christ totally, we are identified in Him, that we act as He acts. And then once all of those things begin to happen, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, if, if I'm still full of all that is natural in me, I will never hunger and thirst after the Lord. If I'm still full of all the sin that comes naturally to me, I'm never going to desire God who is holy and without sin, because the Bible says I won't. John three nineteen that the light came into the world, John says, and yet the men preferred the darkness. So even though the light was present, even though God himself was on the earth, it says that men 
preferred, because of the sin in our lives, we would prefer sin over God. But once God empties us of all that, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then as it says, we'll be satisfied when that happens. When God begins to work in our lives and create that longing, He is faithful to fulfill that longing, to satisfy that hunger, to satiate that thirst. And in verse 7 it says, Blessed are the merciful. So we've, we've taken a turn. We've moved from being emptied of sin into being filled with righteousness, and now we are acting on that righteousness. See that transition? Blessed are the merciful. So now the Christian is acting as God acts. We learn mercy from God. And so you see on your notes, starting with this fifth beatitude, we see the fruits of the gospel as it's worked out in the life of the Christian. The fruit of the gospel, or the fruits of the gospel, as it's worked out in the life of the Christian. So we can say with authority, the authority being the Bible, not me, we can say with authority that Christians are merciful. Christians are merciful people. That's an essential meaning of the word Christian. And so... I was reading one pastor talking about this. He said, if you're not merciful, then you should ask if you're a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean if you struggle with mercy from time to time that you're not a Christian. We all will struggle with our sin. But if we do not lead lives marked by being merciful in the way that God is, then we should question, am I walking with the Lord? Because very clearly from Jesus' teaching... Christians are merciful people. So we may each know merciful people who are not Christians. People who seem to possess kindness. They're compassionate naturally. They do things that are merciful acts, but they're not Christians. That's not the kind of mercy we're talking about. Because I can be in my sin and still do merciful things. And that's not the kind of mercy we're talking about. Jesus is speaking of a supernatural gift of God's mercy worked out in the life of the Christian. We're not talking about just being merciful as we see in some people. We're talking about something that comes from God himself that's worked out in our lives through the gospel. And so again, we we want to note that this is not a spiritual if-then equation. You know what an if-then equation is? Somebody tell me what an if-then equation is. Right. If I do X, you know, if I, if I run, then I'll lose weight, right? That's an if-then equation. And even that one's not certain. <laughs> but if we do something, then something will happen. And that's sometimes how we treat God. That's sometimes how we treat the Christian life. If I behave enough, then God will do this for me. If I give enough, if I am merciful enough, if I don't sin enough, that's sometimes how we get into acting when it comes to our Christian life. And it's a lot more pervasive in our own lives, I think, than we might like to think about or even that we might even realize that we act in those ways. I think I told you a couple weeks ago that I kind of brought in that if-then statement with Christian music. That if I sin, then I can't listen to Christian music. Y'all remember that? You know, I talked about when I was feeling convicted, I wouldn't listen to Christian music. I didn't feel like I could listen to Christian music because I had sinned. And even that's, if I distance myself from God, then there will come a time when I can come back to Him. And that's just wrong. But this is not a spiritual equation where Jesus is saying, if you are merciful, you will receive mercy. That's not what He's saying. He's not saying, if you are merciful like God is... then you will receive mercy. That's not at all what he's saying. It's more of a, because God has, I am able equation. It's more of a, because God has been merciful to me, I can be merciful to others. Because God has been infinitely merciful to me through Jesus Christ, I can thus be merciful to others even when they don't deserve it. Even when they are willfully rejecting my mercy. You see, the gospel places the primary emphasis on being something rather than doing something. Think about that. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ places the primary emphasis on who we are, not what we do. Now, we need to not make the mistake that there are certain things we do as Christians. Right? James says, faith without works is what? Dead. So it's assumed that we will be workers for the glory of God. Ephesians 2 verse 10, anybody know what that says? Bible drill. It says that God prepared good works for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, but it's the gift of God. And that he has prepared good works ahead of that salvation for you so that you might walk in them. So there's an assumption in the New Testament that we will actually live out Christianity and do works for God. But the primary emphasis is on who we are. Because if I am not being holy before the Lord, I will never live righteously in the world. And so a Christian is something, and that something is holy before he does something. A Christian is something before he does something. I thought this quote was interesting. We are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is meant to control us. I don't get to tell God, this is how I'm going to live as a Christian. That I like, I like the package you've laid out, you know, 1 through 10, but I really, I'm only going to do 1 through 7. We don't get to engage with God like that. We are not able to say, I'm going to be this kind of Christian God and nothing else. God says, here's what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Follow me or reject me. There's no neutral ground. I think Carol and I were talking about that this week. There's no neutral when it comes to following God. There's not a, yes, I follow him, maybe kind of sometimes, and no. There's just, yes, I am following the Lord, or no, I am not. And so this beatitude of mercy flows out of verse 6, which is being, uh, which is hungry and thirsting for righteousness and being filled with that, and it manifests itself, or it grows into mercy. So having obtained the mercy of God through the gospel, the Christian now exercises mercy in his or her life. When I encounter the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, it so transforms me that I become merciful as my Father is. It becomes a natural part of my new self. As I've been born again into new life in Christ, I am a merciful person. And so what then is mercy? Let's define mercy. It is a gracious disposition or um, kind of how we are as people toward fellow creatures and Christians. It's the kindness and benevolence that feels the miseries of others. It's a spirit that regards the suffering and afflictions of others with compassion. It's the grace that causes one to deal leniently with an offender and to scorn the taking of revenge. How many of you have ever gotten mad at somebody because they were being too lenient with someone you thought deserved worse punishment? I have had that situation recently in my life. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but some very close friends of mine um, were engaged in an affair with each other, and I was caught in the middle because of my relationship to both people. Both people involved were were very close friends of mine, and their spouses were. And so, not only was I involved from that standpoint, but I was, I'm also a pastor. So, you know, that brings me in as well. And so, I ended up pastoring both sides. And several people throughout the process were upset with me that I would sit with this person. Why would you go and sit with them when, when they've done what they've done? Why would you even give them the time of day when they have ruined this family? Why would you be kind to them? So maybe you've been in that situation that you've been lenient with a person that somebody else thought you shouldn't have been and they got mad at you. Maybe you've been the person who someone has been lenient with, that someone has been kind to you when you shouldn't have received kindness or you didn't deserve to receive kindness. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, that's true of you. 
that God has been eternally merciful to you when he should not have been or could not have been. We don't want to, I want to be careful of my language. I shouldn't say God should not have been. That means he did something wrong. So God had every right not to be merciful with you, not to be merciful with me, and yet he was. And so it's that, it's that grace that causes us to deal leniently with an offender instead of taking revenge. It can be understood as a forgiving spirit, a non-retaliating spirit, a spirit that has given up all attempts at self-vindication, a spirit that does good in the face of evil and loves in the place of hate. You see, when we start to unpack biblical mercy, it starts to contradict our culture, starts to contradict our world, because it feels really good sometimes to hold a grudge. We can feel real justified in being angry at someone. It feels really good sometimes to vindicate ourselves when we've been wronged. You know, maybe that person uh, pulled out in front of you, and it's absolutely right for you to ride their tail for half a mile. Or to make sure that they know what color your car bumper was. Or, you know, it feels good sometimes to vindicate ourselves. Mercy is that reality that I don't need to do that. I don't have to give in to that. That's not part of who I am anymore. I used to get so mad at my dad growing up because my dad, some of you met my dad. Uh, he's a wonderful man. I hardly ever get mad at him anymore. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you grow up, right? I'm sure he would say, you still need to grow up. But I used to get so mad at him when I was younger because somebody would pull out in front of us or somebody would say something or do something. I would want him to retaliate. I would want him to respond, at least verbally, at least stand up for yourself. And he would just say, son, grace. It became, it became a joke in our family that we would say grace before he would say grace because we knew that he was going to say that. Grace. And as I have matured out of, out of those things, I've come to realize just how much of a gift that was that my father instilled in me. Just how much of Jesus was in him in those moments when I felt like it was right to retaliate or seek vindication. He said, nope, it's not worth it because if God's forgiven me all that he has forgiven me, I have no need to exact payment from anybody else. I can get over anything because of what God has shown mercy to me for. Uh, have you heard me say I have quotes in front of my Bible yet? All right, so I have quotes in the front of my Bible. You don't need to come look at them, all right? They're good quotes. Here's one. You can now cut this out and put it in your Bible, all right? Might know who Charles Spurgeon is. All right, English Baptist preacher in the 18th century, they call him uh, the prince of preachers, but he said this, too many think too lightly of sin and therefore too lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with a rope around his neck, he is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor and glory of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. You see, until we feel the weight of our sin before God, we will never love the fact that God has forgiven us of our sin. Until we feel the weight of our sin that God has forgiven us, we will never forgive other people. Until I realize just how much God has forgiven me, I'm never going to be able to get over even the smallest things in your life that are done against me or that I think are done against me. You see, the more conscious I am of my indebtedness to God's grace, the more merciful I will act to those who wrong me or to those who injure me or to those who hate me. And so mercifulness in the child of God is simply a reflection of the mercy that's found in his heavenly parent. Mercifulness in the Christian is just a reflection of the greater infinite mercy that's to be found in God. And so let's, let me run through quickly some examples of mercy in the Scripture. I'm not going to do all these. But we see mercifulness with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. They, they tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. He was taken off to Egypt. His father thought he was dead. And yet here, years later, they show up starving. And... Joseph's second command in Egypt. 
And the natural response would be to throw them in prison. You come to me after all you've done. I have every right to retaliate against you. And yet, what does Joseph do? He says that he weeps and embraces them because he has received the mercy of God, and so he extends the mercy of God. We see it in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan that all these people pass by on the other side of the road, and yet the Good Samaritan, who is culturally looked, very, looked down upon, Jews hated Sumerians, and they avoided them at all costs. And yet Jesus picks a Sumerian to be the hero of his story. And so it says the Good Samaritan's passing by, and not only does he see the man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead, it says he enters into his pain. He goes over and he cleans his wounds, and he dresses his wounds, and he puts him on his horse, and he takes him to an inn, and he pays for him to stay there. Not only was the Good Samaritan merciful, but he was, his, his mercy moved him to enter into that man's suffering and to meet his needs. And just as with all the other Beatitudes, we see the ultimate culmination of mercy in the life and ministry of Jesus. Not only did Jesus come to sinful man, but he entered into our misery by taking on the form of man, living as we live, yet without sin, dying in our place and rising to secure eternal life from sin. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what mercy is. You see, biblical mercy is true, or true mercy is messy, painful, costly, and not popular. Biblical mercy is messy, painful, costly, and not popular. I was reminded uh, of mercy recently. I was at the hospital with Dolores Stewart and Rocky. And that is a picture of biblical mercy. That is costly. That is messy. She in, she's invested her life. And yet, it pales in comparison to the mercy that God has shown her. She's able to do that because she understands God's mercy. So let's ask this question. How does mercy work in our lives? Well, the promise in Jesus' teaching is that as we are merciful, we find mercy. We find greater mercy. And so we see that God has created mercy with this specific function in his world or in his economy. You know, our economy is the way the world works, or the way our culture works. Our economy includes jobs and money and stores and laws. And so I know when, when we talk about our economy, I know that I can go to the store with a $5 bill and get something. That's how our economy works. I can give them $5 and if it's four ninety-five, I can expect $0.05 cent back. And uh, that's, that's just the way our economy works. And God has an economy, and it, it operates in the world. It's part of the way the world works. And so what Jesus is teaching us about God's economy is that when I extend God's mercy, I receive mercy. When I extend it, I receive it. And so we see his government of the world extends even to the functions of our character. And we're talking about that on Sunday morning, that Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God, right? That he's come to establish the government of God in the world, and that affects everything, even my very life and the way my life works. But Jesus is talking about a characteristic. He's talking about something that's true of my heart. And so what we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that God's government even extends to my emotions and my actions. That's a pretty powerful governor. Pretty powerful king. This is his world, and we function within his world. And he says that as we are merciful, we receive mercy. <clears throat> I listed some texts there for you, Matthew 7, Proverbs, and then Micah, that, that talk about the benefit of mercy in the life of the Christian. That it's a great joy just to extend mercy to others. That the, uh, the saying, it's you know, more blessed to give than to receive, doesn't quite hold true. We're far more blessed when we receive the mercy of God through the, through the gospel. But as we extend mercy, that God's mercy works through us, we receive mercy. So before I move on, any thoughts or questions about mercy or any blanks that you didn't get filled in? So I'm really, I'm really good about this, and I don't have mine underlined on here, so I don't know. You have to read the statement. 
exercises. All right. I'm going to press on to the pure in heart. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know of any greater gift than that. To see God, to see God as He is, to experience Him. See, purity of heart can be difficult to understand, yet we should long for it with all of our hearts. We may not understand right off the bat what does it mean to be pure in heart, because all of us know we're not pure in heart. But because it says that the, the gift of pureness of heart is seeing God, we should long for that. That should be the driving desire in our life. You see, it's why we were created. It's the reason we exist in order to see and savor God. The reason why you exist is to know God. Sometimes we, we ask that question, why do I exist? Why am I doing this, that, and the other? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? It's to see God and to enjoy Him and to find glory in Him and to love Him. And so the promise for those who of a pure heart is we get to see God. We get to see Him, which is incredible. Sorry, I didn't want to cough directly into your ear. But we get to see God. 1 John chapter 1. Now, 1 John, if you know anything about John, it's a letter to the Christian church. It's a letter that basically says, here's what it means to be a Christian. But in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how can we in good conscience say we have pure hearts? Because we don't. Yet we know that Jesus cleanses us from all sin because even though 1 John 1 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, just before that, in verse 7 he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, talking about God, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk as God walks, if we live unto his glory, then we can be assured that Jesus cleanses us of all sin. So to be saved, which is to find forgiveness of sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live accordingly, doesn't mean that we cease to be sinners. You might think that if you raised in the church, you might think that, that you stopped sinning once you became saved. I kind of did. I, I at least thought you stopped struggling with this so much. And it's just not the case. As many of you shook your heads, you know, I, I didn't think that at all. See, you're ahead of the game than me. But we don't cease to be sinners. And a lot of times we don't even cease to struggle with some of the sins that we had before. Now, by God's grace, we will. We will stop struggling with some sin and move past them. But we don't cease to be sinners. And Scripture is full of examples of God's people failing. Some of them fail pretty spectacularly. We see Noah. Right? Noah is hailed as a hero. <clears throat> he got drunk and uncovered himself. That's pretty, that's pretty bad failure that he, that he did those things. That he failed to maintain holiness because you know what? If it was up to him, he would not have done it. Abraham, we see, lied, failed to trust God, putting his wife in compromising situations. So Abraham in Genesis 12 receives God's covenant promise that he's going to make him into a great nation, that he's going to lead him, that he's going to be his God. And yet when faced with a king who he thinks, he might kill me and steal my wife because she's pretty, I'll just tell him she's my sister. And he does it twice. He does that twice. That's a pretty spectacular failure of faith. But you know what's encouraging to me is that no, no, no hero in the Bible is perfect. I find that very encouraging. That, that Abraham's life of faith is like this. Sometimes it's like this. 
before it comes back up. Moses disobeyed God and wasn't able to go into the promised land. Job cursed the day of his birth rather than trusting that God was shepherding his sufferings. David committed murder and adultery. Elijah fled in fear of Jezebel instead of trusting in God. Peter denied Jesus three times. Paul grapples openly with the fact that he wrestles against sinfulness. He says in Romans 7, you've probably read it 7 and 8, he says, I find that when I want to do right, sin lies close at hand. When I do the things I, he said, you know, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? And then he goes on into that great hymn, blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. But the Bible speaks plainly that each of these people knew and loved God, and yet they remained plagued by their sin. How is it that the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart, and yet he, he commits adultery and murder and then lies about it? You see, when we meet somebody like that, what, what is our response to a lying, adulterous murderer? What? Throw them in jail. You've lost the right to be human, right? You've lost my respect. Right? You see, it's, it's hard. It's hard because if we met somebody today that fell into that, lying, adulterous murderer, we would never entrust them with any kind of spiritual leadership. We would never say you're, you, you're a man after God's own heart or you could be a man after God's own heart. Or what if uh, somebody from ISIS, y'all, y'all know what ISIS is? What if somebody from ISIS got saved and comes over here as a missionary? How would you receive him? So Paul was. Paul persecuted the church and killed them. And yet the Lord saved him, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's not that hard to, to realize why the new Christians didn't want to receive the apostle Paul for the first time. We would have some pretty well-founded reservations about receiving someone who is former ISIS, but has come in to talk to us about Jesus. Right? But the Bible speaks plainly that sinful people love God, and yet are plagued by sin. So when we think about purity of heart, we need to let the Bible weigh in on the conversation. Because it was, if it was up to us to pronounce who was pure of heart and who wasn't, <laughs> there'd be a really long line on one side of the, of the room. And me on the other side, right? I'm just kidding. One pastor notes this, the truth that one of the most conclusive evidences that we do possess a pure heart is the discovery and consciousness of the remaining impurity that continues to plague my own heart. How can we know that we're pure in heart? It's the fact that we know that we aren't. How do I know that I'm pure in heart before God in the way that Jesus intends? It's it's the fact that I am consciously aware that sin still lives and lurks in my heart. That I am no better than a lying adulterous murderer, that I'm one step away from some disastrous sin, that I'm not better than any sin or any sinner. It's knowing that sin still lives in my heart and that I need Jesus in every way. And so purity, purity is freedom from defilement and divided affections. It's freedom from defilement and divided affections. You ever, you ever think about that, that our affections are divided? Affection means to love something, to desire it, to give yourself to it. If, you know, if you're married, your affection should be for your spouse. And yet we have divided affections. We should have affections for God, and yet our sin creates divided affection in our heart. Because just like Paul says in Romans 7, when I know, when, when I know the things I should do, I end up not doing those things. And I end up doing the things I know I shouldn't do. And I think if we read the Bible, we'd say Paul's, you know, one of those upper tier super Christians, right? 
He's one of those levels above me. And really, that's not the picture of Paul that he wants us to have at all. Anybody know what Paul said about himself? Small. Yeah, changed his name. I'm thinking of there's in this other place. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. Where he calls himself the chief of sinners. We don't often think of our own selves in that term. We, we often think, well, there's people worse than me, but there's people better than me. I'm just kind of in the middle. And Paul says, well, I am the chief of sinners. So purity is freedom from the defilement of sin, from divided affections. It's sincerity, genuineness, and singleness of heart. It's godly simplicity. It's godly simplicity. Uh, there's a, a movement going on right now in culture. It's called minimalism. Anybody know what it is? Have you heard of it? Minimalism. Get rid of all your stuff. It's mainly among, uh, from what I've seen, young millennials who don't have a lot of stuff anyway. <laughs> but minimalism says that stuff weighs us down. It plagues us down. So we'll just get rid of all of it and live simply. I'll have a small place that I live and sleep and cook. I'll have an easy way to get to my job, and I'll just kind of keep my life very simple. And there's some pros to that, and there's some cons to that as well. But we should have that kind of idea when it comes to our Christian faith, a godly simplicity, that godliness is my one and only motivation. That godliness is my one and only motivation. It's my only goal in life. My goal in life is not to be godly and be a success. My goal in life is not to be godly and retire well. My goal in life is not to, not to be godly and this, that, or the other. Because what ends up happening when we, when we divide our affections like that and we try to bring something beside godliness, we end up putting godliness away. We end up trying to fit godliness into the other thing instead of just devoting ourselves to godliness. And so here's some things about purity of heart. When we possess purity of heart, as Jesus says, we possess spiritual discernment. We know God through His Word because we see that hope and understanding are found nowhere else. We gain discernment because we are in His Word. You see, discernment is not this supernatural gift that God just kind of zaps you with. Discernment comes through knowing what God has said in His Word and being able to say that is not what God says in His Word. The pure in heart enjoy intimate and delightful communion with God as a way of life. Intimate and delightful communion with God as a way of life. The pure in heart recognize that at present we see God only through a dark glass. Yet there is coming a day when we will gaze upon Him face to face. We can't see God fully now. We can't understand God fully now. We don't know why things happen now. The Bible says we see through a cloudy glass at best. We can't see the whole picture. But we know that God's there. We know that God's sovereign in the world. We know that Jesus came to establish God's kingdom in the world and that he's saving people and that our salvation is secure in him and that nothing in this life can take us away from that. We know that the pure in heart can know God intimately. We can see a lot through that cloudy glass, but we can't see it all. And even though we can see a lot through what Jesus says through his word, we don't even see the majority of it. Isn't that incredible? The goodness of God that we encounter through his word is just scratching the surface. So to be pure in heart is to be like the Lord Jesus himself, just like all the other ones. Although Jesus did not sin, he was perfect, he was spotless, he was pure, to be pure in our heart means we are to keep the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. It means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect, that He should be the supreme desire of our lives in every realm. It means that we should desire to know Him as He desires to be known. That we love Him and that we serve Him. So I, I want us to talk for a second. When I said that He should be the supreme desire of our lives in every realm or every aspect of our life, talk to me about that. 
Where is God normally a supreme desire for us? An easy one. When you're down and out. When things are hard, right? Uh, when, when life's coming undone, I want a God who is entirely in control, right? Where else, where else is an easy one? That God is our supreme desire. Sickness. Church. All right, where are some hard places where we don't want God necessarily to be the center of our lives? Or maybe it's not we don't want him to. We wouldn't say that that bluntly. But he tends not to be. Things are going good. We want it our way. Yeah, when you're around other people, you want to fit in with them. Work. It's easy to it's easy just to to get in the groove and do your job and go home, right? It's easy to hide too. I don't want people to know. Where are where are places where we don't want God sometimes? In our sin. I don't want God to know sometimes what I'm thinking or what my intentions are. I mean, you think about, we'll get to this uh, later in the sermon, but Jesus starts teaching on the law. And he says, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you've even had hate in your heart, then you've already murdered. And that's, God is in my thoughts and mind. My, it's in my intentions. He knows. <laughs> I guess that's a matter of conscience, Miss Darnell. Darnell. <laughs> Pray. What are some other areas where we don't want God? To be the supreme desire. Yeah, I mean, when we want a plan to unfold the way we want it to unfold. Yeah, I don't want to act on that mercy. I don't want to be merciful right now. Now, we, you know, when we have a plan... Sometimes we are, or not sometimes, we are all the time ready for God to come in and carry out our plan the way we want to carry it out. <laughs> I don't want God to come in and say, no to that, no to that, no to that, right? What are some other areas where we don't want God to be part? Being wrong and right. Inside of our marriages sometimes, yeah. That's right. Mark and I were talking about, a couple weeks ago I think it was, about something as, as trivial as laundry. Somebody asked you when you're having a great day, how controversial is laundry? Just a pile of clothes. You work all day. You come home with the expectation of I'm going to sit down and clean house and there's just some laundry. World War III has just begun, right? It becomes entirely controversial. <laughs> Calm down, TJ. That's right. Yeah, but think about that. James, in James chapter 4, says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I know what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He says your passions are at war within you. You have and do not, you do not, you do not have, and so you murder. You, you desire and do not have, and so you murder. 
I read that, I'm like, I have never done that. Never once. And then Jesus comes along and says, you know, you've heard it say, you shall not commit murder, but I tell you, if you hate it. Now, think about that. How often do we hate people who get in the way of our obtaining what we want? Pretty regularly. And not only do we hate them, we begin to punish them, especially if it's in our own home. You're keeping me from doing this, and I should be able to do this. You're in my way, and so I'm now going to punish you. I'm going to withhold affection from you. I'm going to speak ill towards you. I'm not going to do this or that. I'm going to push your buttons or this, that, or the other. Instead of saying, you know what? God's been merciful to me by saving me from sin. I'll just fold these clothes myself. (laughs) Now, that sounds funny. But you try that next time. Next time you are about to get upset over something small, remind yourself of that. I, I am totally free to be merciful right now. Now, I try to do that in my own life. Uh, my, my sweet wife is not in here. She would tell you I fail at that often. Parenting is another arena, right? <laughs> Just let me be mad at my kids, all right? Until you're looking at somebody else and you're like, Just let them be kids. Every parent hates that. When you tell them, just let them be kids. Because they're thinking it themselves. They just can't. About our money. Sometimes we don't want God to have any part of that. Or we want God to agree with our plan for our stuff. Or our habits. Or our routines. The things that we attach the word our to. Sometimes we don't want God anywhere near those things. And yet, to be pure in heart means that we are to live to the glory of God in every respect and that he should be the supreme desire of our lives in every way. So when we, when we come across areas of our life where we realize I am in competition with God here, we have an opportunity to repent over that. We have an opportunity to to seek that purity of heart that Jesus says and teaches, knowing that, and here's the thing, I can attest to this personally. And I use the laundry example as an actual example out of my life. I've been married 12 years. We have fought about laundry. We fought about toilet paper. And I don't know if y'all are married too. You have fought about any number of trivial things. But I can tell you from experience when... I intentionally apply these teachings to those moments. They become opportunities of worship. Because as I'm folding the laundry quietly, God says, see, it wasn't that big of a deal. You're serving your wife. Or you're serving your husband, whoever, wherever situation you find yourself in, or your, your employer, or whatever situation that, that faces you with. Being merciful becomes an opportunity to receive mercy. Seeking pureness of heart We see God. And it's just incredible. I hope you're taken away by it. It's just incredible that Jesus says these things to us. That we might benefit from Him. That we might come to know Him. That we might live with Him. That we might live with one another. So I'll land the plane there. Any any thoughts you guys have on any of that? Comments you want to make? So going back to the example I was telling you about, the people that I knew, uh, I sat with the wronged spouse while he forgave the wrong, the, the, uh, bad person. (laughs) The person who committed the wrong, I sat with the two of them while he forgave. And it's incredible. But you're right, when you, when you have been wronged, that's when you can tell, all right, mercy is real in my life. Don't you think they would need to take a stand against that person who was judging them? Yeah, I mean, we are. We're saying, when we withhold mercy, we're saying, you're not worthy of my mercy, but I'm worthy of God's mercy. Just like the, uh, um, the parable that Jesus told of uh, the king who forgave the person, the 10,000 talent debt. 
He says, you know, you're free. I've wiped it away. And that person then goes and wrings the neck of someone who owes him 100 talents. That person really didn't understand what had been forgiven of him, so he didn't extend it. And when we choose not to extend to mercy, what we're saying is, you're not worthy of my mercy, but I am worthy of God's. Any other thoughts? She did. He said, I want to know who won the laundry conversation. Um, I, I hope this is being beneficial to you. Um, I trust that God's word is beneficial. Um, my teaching is hit or, hit or miss, but you know, God says his word never goes out, never returns void. So I trust that God is using this in your life. I hope you're talking about it and working it out in your life. Same thing with Sundays. Um, but let me pray and, and close this. We'll be done for tonight, and I'll be around down front if you need me for anything. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we never get over that. I pray that we never tire of saying that. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that we can read it. Thank you that you've given us minds to understand it. Pray that we just give thanks that we live in a time when they are so accessible. Pray that, Lord, we would be faithful to hide it in our hearts. And that we would be Bible people. We would pattern our lives after. Thank you for teaching the disciples all those years ago and teaching us now what it looks like to be a Christian, the essential character of a Christian. Thank you, God, for being merciful to us through the gospel. Thank you for empowering us through that to be merciful to others. Lord, I pray that we would be lights for the gospel in a dark world because we are merciful. Lord, I pray that in our purity of heart, which is only a gift from you, that you would give us single-minded commitment to you. You would give us single-minded devotion to you. That we would have a godly simplicity about how we live, that we want you in every part of our lives, in every area of our lives, in everything that we do. We're conscious that you're aware not only of what we do, but of what we think and what we intend. And yet, God, you are merciful with us. And you hold us up. And you give us life. And there's coming a day, because of what Jesus Christ has done, that all your people will go to be with you, and sin will be no more. Lord, teach us to long for that day. Teach us to be like Paul, who said, My desire is to depart and be with Christ. So that's far better. But if I'm to remain here, it will be for the progress and joy of the faith of others. Lord, give us that attitude. Give us that mentality. We praise you. We love you. And we pray in your holy name. Amen. Hope you have a wonderful evening.